Welcome to FRT, the IEF podcast on finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr of the IEF, together with my colleague Natalia Bailey, and today we're exploring the emerging landscape and trends in machine learning and artificial intelligence across the financial services industry. Our special guest is Shamit Kundu, Head of Financial Services and Chief Strategy Officer at Truera, a startup business dedicated to building trust in AI technology. And for us, it's a reunion of sorts. In his previous capacity as Chief Data Officer at Standard Chartered, Shamit was one of the foremost intellectual leaders within the IIF's work on machine learning and on a range of other data topics as well, including data ethics and also data localization. Many of our listeners will have heard Shamik and seen him at various IIF events over the years. Shamik is also a member of the Bank of England and UK Financial Conduct Authority's Artificial Intelligence Public-Private Forum, a theme that we'll also pick up as part of our conversation. Shamik, it's great to speak with you again. Welcome to FRT. Thank you, Brad uh, and, and Natalia. I have to say, before I say anything else, um, and this this move that I've made in my in my career is entirely thanks to my involvement with yourselves. I think the uh, the, the the opportunities uh, that the IAF gave me in terms of understanding this space more, fortunately or unfortunately, piqued my interest so much that I decided to go away and do something about it. So thank you for that. And you will be to blame if it all goes pear shaped at some point. <laughs> Well, you're uh, you're very modest and, and very flattering. Um, although I, I do should also stress that I think the uh, the benefit and the learning there was very much in in our favour as well. And certainly, we're very fortunate at the IF that we get to work with so many great experts from across the industry and to to heed and to, to learn from their their great insights and their very practical insights. Uh, and you've been a, an enormous contributor for Natalia and myself and our wider working group. And we might start with the point you've made there about your your transition. And if we can talk about a little bit about yourself to, to begin, you know, you've made this move from leading data at a, a large multinational bank, a GCIB bank, to being now at a, a data AI-focused startup. Interested in hearing how you found that transition. I, I realise it's relatively new in the, in your new capacity, but how have you found that transition so far? Well, first of all, you say it's relatively new. It's my fourth month, which I'm told in startup years is at least four years. So it's uh, apparently I'm a veteran. Um, but uh, as you might expect, moving from a bank of more than 85,000 people to a startup with barely 30 is a massive change, right? Uh, there's some obvious things like the number of layers in the organization. I mean, almost non-existent. I, I don't actually, I don't think our system has a reporting line. Our, our, our HR system doesn't have a reporting line, I suspect. Or, or, or the time it took to set up my corporate laptop. Uh, it was 15 minutes, by the way, end to end. So those things are, are really interesting. But I think the biggest change is, uh, is the ability to focus, right? So uh, I, when you're in a large bank taking care of data, and I, in my role, I also had a CIO role for, for, uh, for a pretty large portfolio, you, your day is spread across so many different things. And, and your ability to, one of the biggest regrets one often has is, if only I was able to spend a little more time with people, with topics, I could have made much more of a difference here or there. But I think the biggest single difference of joining a startup, particularly one focused on a, on a very specific area like this, is that I'm pretty much spending all my team on that one theme. Right? So it's one topic um, and every aspect of it from how does regulation impact that topic to where are competitors on that to what are clients saying about this. Uh, to how our customer and social expectations changing. I think all of that is all around one theme. So that, I think, is the biggest single difference. I mean, it feels like I've moved from the proverbial super tanker to a small, sleek yacht. And that's mostly positive. But it's also, of course, true that in a storm, you'd much rather be in a super tanker than in a small yacht. I mean, 
but for the moment it's been a fantastic uh, first four months uh, we'll see how things go firstly i want to echo what brad said thank you so much for joining us on frt um, and for all the contributions through the years i think i got to know you through some of the IF work um, and i'm very glad that we're continuing to hear about the work that you are doing and i first heard of Chuera, i think over a year ago and it was through the work with the Standard Charter that they were doing. They were partnering on the retail bank to tackle unjust bias in algorithm lending front. And that, I think that was made public later in the year. But could you give us an overview of your role at Troera? What is Troera trying to accomplish? And what can we expect to see from Troera? Sure. So perhaps I'll start with the second question, what is Troera trying to accomplish? And then talk a little bit about my role. The, the core belief on which Truera is based is as following. Um, there is, as you know, I mean, both of you have been central to this. There's a huge amount of excitement, not just in, in our financial service industry, but across industries in the transformational power of, of AI and machine learning. But when something becomes that important, there will naturally also be a need to make it trustworthy and scalable, right? So particularly given some of machine learning's uh, weaknesses, which uh, you, know, you have written about in past papers, Natalia, yourself, for example, the black box nature of many machine learning models, their tendency to overfit to the data that has been used to train them, their inability to necessarily adjust to new data, which was brought to light quite, uh, quite vividly during COVID-19. And of course, the fact that they can accentuate biases in society or even introduce new ones based on the training data. So in that context, um, you know, being able to demystify machine learning and AI, to create transparency around it, to know that it can be relied upon, uh, and yes, to, to, to ensure that it does not introduce and perpetuate unfair treatment of customers or citizens is super critical, right? And that is what Truera is trying to accomplish. I, I want to stress we're, we're not an AI ethics firm because I think that tries to oversimplify the problem. You know, I, I always keep saying a, an, an unethical uh, machine learning model is first and foremost a really bad machine learning model to begin with, right? So we need to create trust in machine learning uh, and that's the that's what Truera software platform tries to do. So importantly, it is not an end-to-end -end platform on which you go and build or deploy your ML models, uh, nor is it um, you know providing specific AI-enabled solutions for, say, fraud or AML or credit. What it is is a platform to help data scientists, if it's in-house or even third parties, or, or people who are checking those models inside the a bank or insurer or, or any other organization. It's a platform to help them understand how those models are working, what features are driving their behavior, and then you know how how does that change across the population of the model, and to assess their quality. Uh, so, for example, all the aspects around bias, around performance, of course, uh, around stability, around their conceptual soundness, as uh, as, as the U.S. Uh, regulation requires, and of course, finally, also to monitor them. So, a software platform to help understand machine learning models to assess them for quality before you go live and to monitor them after they go live. And very importantly, assess for holistic quality, not just for their predictive power. It can be used for both in-house and, and um, third-party solutions. It's industry agnostic, but as you would expect, uh, regulated industries like ours has, has some of the earliest clients. So in, in terms of my roles, uh, I have two formal roles. I head strategy, which in a startup is a very interesting topic. Strategy can evolve very quickly depending on client feedback and where the business goes. Uh, and I run the financial services business, right? Uh, and, and then given my background and involvement with regulatory forums, I also play the lead role in terms of reg engagement. Finally, 
one that I really look forward to. Being in Singapore, I'm also responsible for uh, the Asia-Pacific business as we hopefully grow that over time. So, Shamit, you've already planted the seed there of a few different themes that we'd really like to pick up and and get into further with you, particularly around uh, how we ensure ethical use, the connection you made there, the the point that an unethical model is a bad model, how we demystify. Um, Before we, we get into some of those specifics, I'd like to get your sense of the, the snapshot of the industry uh, in terms of machine learning adoption. And obviously, we've run a number of surveys at the IEF, and you've been a great contributor to those, tracking some of that progress and tracking some of the issues that have emerged. And we've seen, as you've noted, the, the huge amount of excitement um, throughout the industry, that there is a lot happening in this space, although in a lot of cases, it's still reasonably early days. It's been perhaps uh, firms that have started using it for a small subset of their wider modeling activities. Really interested that, that you're in a position now where you probably have a, a wider snapshot across the industry and, and interested in your sense of how you see the overall state of maturity and, and perhaps the areas where there's the most utility. Sure. I, you, you're absolutely right, by the way. I know this is one area where I know much more today than I knew four months ago when I only knew Standard Chartered and, and read your surveys and the Bank of England surveys, et cetera. And talking to about, I think it must be about 25 to 30 large banks and insurers around the world. Uh, it's given quite a few interesting perspectives. So, so I mean, the easier question is, you know, where, where, where is the, where is it used? And then I'll come to the maturity point. The, the biggest uses of machine learning right now, as I can see, it seem to be in customer engagement. Uh, so, the proverbial chatbots or conversational agents. So that has dampened a bit. Uh, but various parts of the KYC process, um, you know, authentication of clients before they come on board. So, for example, take a selfie, take a uh, take a picture of your ID and match the two, etc. Obviously, targeting of propositions to customers. It's a natural progression from traditional analytics models that were used in the space. And in in a lot of what you would call defensive areas, uh, fraud detection, automated investigation of financial crime alerts trading room surveillance, other conduct surveillance applications, and some aspects of the credit process. Though, and I think this came up even in your survey results, not necessarily in the actual decision to grant credit or not, certainly not in too many automated situations like that. But there's so many other elements of the credit process from contributing to the final decision, to doing monitoring, to collections and so on. Um, but, but, and, and of course, sometimes also kind of influencing the actual credit decision. So all of those are common areas in even more operational areas as well, particularly around extracting information from paper contracts. So whether it's in trade finance or legal contracts uh, and getting the actual information out uh, in financial markets and logical extension of some of the algo trading work, which is not necessarily machine learning around optimizing execution. So it's quite a broad range of use cases. I'm reluctant to say AI uses or machine learning uses experimental, and I don't think your surveys suggest that either. It's not experimental. In fact, surveys from Bank of England, uh, I, I don't remember if yours also said that. I saw one not industry-specific from McKinsey earlier this year. All of them suggest somewhere between 50 to 65%, right? so half to two-thirds of traditional incumbents have adopted machine learning, and not just adopted in one proof of concept somewhere, but properly adopted in at least one area. So it's not like it's an experiment. There are active live use cases. But those same surveys will also tell you that the importance of machine learning in these areas is peripheral at best. You know, lots of CEOs lose sleep over what happens if my ATMs go down tomorrow. I doubt if any CEO of a traditional bank loses their sleep thinking what would happen if my machine learning model failed tomorrow. 
And, and that's a good thing, of course, it's not reached that stage, but it also means it simply does not matter sufficiently to the core business for many of the incumbents or, or even from some of the traditional minded challenges. Uh, it's just not important enough to the core business yet to make the cut, right? So I guess it's a story of lots of interest, um, lots of some, quite some adoption, but not sufficiently core to the business or not sufficiently large scale at least to make a big enough difference. So I think that's that's where I see it. I think our last survey, we had 68% of firms that reported using machine learning in production, but then you're right. Um, and I will use the word cautious. I think the adoption in the financial industry has been cautious because it's so heavily regulated as, as we were talking about just now. Um, and you're right in the sense that it's not necessarily being used by all of those 68% of firms for a full machine learning model. It is being used for, in some instances, for a specific credit risk functions. And I'm also oversimplifying when I use the word credit risk functions. But what we did in the survey, as you may recall, was um, group them into four different groups. And I think we had the first one as data cleaning feature extraction. We also had that exploration, segmentation, model development, and model validation. Um, and what we saw was that the majority of firms were using it specifically for model development, for variable selection, and, and model building. Um, but there were a substantive number of firms that were also using it for segmentation. So yes, it, it wasn't necessarily all firms, all 68% of firms, using it for everything and starting from that data cleaning through model validation. Although, as you also mentioned, there were some cases in which we did see some firms that were more advanced and those firms, um, we even categorized them in a different group because they have been using machine learning for over a decade and their business was already applying machine learning. It wasn't only for retail, for example, they may have already been using it for corporate or for SMEs. But overall, um, I agree with, with your assessment of the industry. It is not always this, this idea that when financial institutions are using machine learning, they're using it for everything, uh, for, for all of those credit risk functions, or that they all have this full machine learning model. It is that lower layer machine learning use, that a specific function in the model development process that we have seen from the majority of the firms in the sample. But I and I think this is a good segue to talking about something else that I have, you have seen in the different surveys um, that have been put out, not just from the IIF, but Bank of England as well. What are the main risks and challenges that you see as in the adoption of machine learning in banking? And now in, in your new role, you may be able to also see some geographical differences. What are those, if you can speak to that? I can, but I have to tell you, I'm shamelessly stealing from a slide that uh, that Brad and I did in, I think, in Tokyo a couple of years ago, because actually most of that still seems, seems relevant. I think the biggest single reason for lack of ML adoption at scale in some in many areas is simply that machine learning has not yet shown itself to be superior to existing alternatives, if there are existing alternatives. Now, where there aren't any, like self-authentication using a driving license yes it's it's but even there actually i'd much rather use a national id scheme rather than trying to take pictures and match it so the reality is wherever it has not been adopted or not adopted at scale it is probably at a top level because it has not yet shown itself to be superior uh, to existing alternatives now why is that many reasons lack of data or at least data of sufficient quality legacy systems that might cramp the last mile deployment uh, some of the known weaknesses of machine learning models that we've talked about lack of adequate talent 
uh, across all three lines, by the way, increasingly I hear, uh, at least from the first line, oh, there's not enough talent in the second line or the third line, and I'm sure you get the similar reactions from the others, and so on. So those those are pretty well documented, and I would point you to your own <laughs> excellent surveys for that. But I think one additional thing that I've noticed in the last few months is there's also the additional fact that machine learning has been very much of an art rather than a science in most banks and insurers, right? Um, particularly if you look at the post-development deployment and ongoing running rather than just the initial development. Uh, and I think that also plays a role in, in kind of letting you get so far, but not necessarily allowing you to scale. And, and many banks and insurers are working on that. One of the most common roles that I come across in my discussions with uh, potential clients is actually machine learning platform owners. So this is typically an ex-data scientist or an ex-data engineer whose task is to help specify and own the product that will help scale up the use of machine learning in the, in the organization. So that also is, I think, an additional factor, which probably two years ago we might not have think about. But collectively, I think all of this represents a trust and scalability deficit. And I think these are both connected, but not necessarily the same. So um, those of us, uh, sorry, those, those, of, uh, those individuals in, in banks, insurers, and other firms uh, whose job it is to sponsor or execute machine learning in initiatives, they need to convince others. They need to convince their business peers. They can need to convince the second and third lines. Sometimes they need to convince customers, regulators, that the machine learning-based alternative is A, better, and B, it's scalable enough. It will not crumble in the real world the first time around things go wrong, right? And that's a pretty hard barrier to cross and it's, it's not un insurmountable but i think to some extent all the stuff we discussed so far in terms of cautious adoption nuanced adoption all of those are self-imposed uh, guardrails that people are building in the absence of more scalable uh, ways of, of addressing those risks so that's that's where i think um, the challenges have been so shamik i think it you talked a little bit about these in in your intro um about explainability. So in your view, when is a post hoc explanation of a machine learning model acceptable versus when an interpretable model is necessary? Um, how should expectations vary with a particular area of application? Sure. I mean, before I answer the explanation question, I'd probably want to spend a little bit of time around the focus of uh, of of AI governance, I think we we focus too much on explainability, perhaps because of this noise around black box and valid noise around black box nature of many ML models. I actually think machine learning model quality or any model quality goes far beyond explainability. Explainability is a very essential element, but there are many other elements like stability and bias and overfitting and data quality, etc. Now you might say, well, we've always had those in many models. One thing we shouldn't forget is that. One important implication of machine learning is that we have many more automate, automatically available in some ways, uh, crudely speaking, models. We have models being used in areas where nobody has used models in the past or nobody has seen the need to use models in the past. So I think the first point is, I think before we talk about explanations, I think we should acknowledge that irrespective of whether it's an inherently uh, explainable model or it's a post hoc explanation, um, there's much more to governing models, uh, as I'm sure you'll agree, beyond explanations. But but keeping that aside, you know, on the specific question of explanation, I think at this stage of maturity, it is not clear to me that there are any use cases in financial services where a post hoc model is not acceptable. Maybe in life and death situations, like in some parts of healthcare, 
Uh, but even there, I'd be I'd be cautious in insisting on a hundred percent, you know, interpretable only models. Um, why do I say that? For a few reasons. I think the first thing is it gives a false sense of safety. I think both of you know my own personal story. One of the reasons I was so engaged in this is that one of my first experiences as a chief data officer was to confront a perfectly simple rule-based model that cost us hundreds of millions in fines and I think more hundreds of millions in remediation. And there was absolutely no machine around that learning, I can tell you. It was a very basic handcrafted rule. It was very interpretable, but guess what? Because people thought it was interpretable, it's all very easy to understand. It led to a false sense of safety. So that's why I mentioned the point about, I think if we focus too much just on explainability, it will lead to, oh, the model is explainable, therefore it's, it's a safe model. I think we need to think much more broadly about model quality. The other is that it is inconsistent with this idea of banking and financial services increasingly becoming an ecosystem of players. Because when you have an ecosystem of players, it is very difficult for you know all the different players in ecosystem. Somebody who's offering um, you know who's originating loans for you, or somebody on whose behalf you're originating loans. If every one of these firms has to be completely transparent with their IP with everybody else, that will genuinely prevent the this kind of open ecosystem that that we're all trying to adopt. So I think I think at this stage, my my personal opinion it's it's too early to insist on purely interpretable models. It's much wiser to think about how do we think about model quality on a much broader basis. And frankly, by the way, not just for machine learning models. Most issues with algorithms haven't been because of the latest machine learning model, as you know. Many, many of the issues are because of ill understood, ill governed rule-based models as well. I like the notion of the the ecosystem of players that you talked about there, and and one of the things that we we focused on in the recent IIF Deloitte uh, realizing the digital promise series was about this wider ecosystem that includes the regulators, and that uh, that banks and insurers are needing to face not only their technology partners but also their regulators. In some cases, we perhaps need to foster greater multilateral collaboration amongst all of those those uh, participants in the broader ecosystem. But if I could use that as a, a prompt to perhaps pick up some of the work you've been doing with regulators, you're, you're part of the Bank of England and, and FCA AI uh, Public Private Forum. Uh, Truera was selected to co-lead a working group as part of the MAS uh, Veritas uh, initiative addressing the responsible use of AI. Interested to get your sense of, of how regulators can be supporting banks' efforts to develop and use this technology responsibly you know, as part of the, I guess, safe innovation agenda. Sure. Now, because I don't work in a bank anymore, I, I hope my answer will be taken as an honest answer rather than one I'm saying to please the regulators. But I actually think the regulators have largely gotten it right so far on this, right? They have not put in premature regulation. Some have introduced guidelines, of course. They have engaged the industry in extensive consultations, including through yourselves, of course, through yours. I mean, I've been with you guys, with all the regulators. They've listened very carefully. They've asked questions. They've not come in saying, we know the answers. And at the same time, they have provided a broad outline of the things they care about. For example, at the Bank of England FCA AI Public Private Forum, if you listen to the, the kickoff speech uh, from, I think, last October by Dave Ramsden, it's an excellent speech which outlines the, 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 the central bank's concerns in a very clear way. Hey, we're worried about these aspects around the model. We're worried about these aspects about the data. We're worried about these aspects around broader accountability. And actually, we're worried about our own ability to manage systemic risk when so much machine learning is, is in use. So I think they've done a really good job in given the maturity we're in, given what we've talked about, how it's quite cautious, et cetera. I think trying to 
have had regulations before this as in proper legislative or regulatory uh, not just guidelines but regulation would have overkilled it now what we need to do now is to translate these early frankly very collaborative consultations and it's not just up to the banks and the regulators actually the rest of the ecosystem the the, the folks who are building those ai based solutions people like ourselves um, auditors consultants right um, all of us together we now need to get away get move on from there's some useful outlines and i think the regulators will now go away and possibly put some of this into regulation or or strengthen existing regulation around model risk and data etc um, while they do that i think the real concern I have is not that regulators are overreaching or anything like that. It is that we'll wait for the regulators to give the regulation, which will be okay. And then we're going to try and govern AI in the same way as we tried to do BCBS 239 compliance, which again, my first introduction to IIF was back in 2013 or 14, I think, in an IIF working group on BCBS 239 compliance. And you guys know how much that was a manual process and continues to remain a manual process, not just the process of filling up the surveys, but the entire mechanism to in introduce compliance with a very well-intended piece of legislation uh, regulation is extremely manual. And I think the thing we should do now is to move less to you know what what can regulators uh, less to the, the 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 letter of the regulatory uh, requirements and more to how do we implement those in a way that is scalable. And and if you ask me where can the regulators help, they should of course get on with now hopefully by next year finalizing where they want regulations but more importantly i think the more they can encourage initiatives such as veritas with the mas where industry participants are encouraged to come together and agree on common ways of achieving things which helps with all the things building expertise creating an ecosystem of technology partners who can help etc so turning those regulatory requirements into practice now you might argue that's not a regulator's job but i actually think they can do quite a bit in banging heads together in a polite way, um, as as the MAS I think is doing, and, and many other regulators also considering doing. So focusing a bit more on the implementation of of that they will come up with is and and helping the industry, cajoling the industry to working towards scalable ways of managing it, not just manual. I think that's a big one. Yeah, Chamik, I want to take back to one point you made before. We were talking a, a little bit more about explainability and, and all of those issues. And you mentioned the importance of, of it, not just explainability, not seeing explainability as the issue or focusing too much on it. And I have to agree with you. I think it goes back to the importance of, of model validation, of model testing, of model performance monitoring. I mean, and you know, the pandemic showed that decreasing model performance, and that was minimized by a strong focus on ongoing model performance monitoring. Um, so I think that pandemic has really shown us that how that is, is, is the important thing that we need to be focusing on. But then on the points you're making about regulators and, and supervisors and how they are approaching machine learning, I also agree with you. I think creating an ecosystem where, where firms can have discussions with public and private sector about these issues is really the way to go. Um, and that sort of prompts me to the EU just published their regulatory framework for the use of AI. Um, what do you think are the implications and the possible effects of the framework in the use of AI in financial services? Do you think this framework um, will stall innovation and pose a hurdle on the adoption of AI, or, or do you have a different view? 
before I answer, I must apologize that I haven't finished reading all 102 pages and all the appendices yet. So it will be somewhat partially framed view, but I've read enough to, to have an initial view. I mean, for the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, it's going to be as big as GDPR, right? In some ways, it might even be bigger because GDPR in some ways was quite narrowly focused on personal data protection. It has the potential to shape the progress of AI globally in the same way that GDPR kind of set the standard for everybody else to react to when it comes to data protection. So the real question is not whether it will be significant in shaping the progress of AI positively or otherwise. The real question is, can the EU also use its position as the de facto global rule setter, at least for now, to drive innovation? And I think this is where I go back to GDPR. If you look at GDPR, it was fantastic in establishing the EU's reputation for thought leadership in this particular space. But sadly, I also think it was also a missed opportunity for the EU. Innovation in privacy enhancing technologies happened largely outside the EU. I mean, a lot of it happened in Israel, but I don't think Israel is part of, part of the EU. So, you know, you set the rules and yet a lot of the innovation that happened, happened elsewhere and sadly didn't get scaled up either so far. The other thing is, you know, with GDPR enforced, you would have thought that enabling safe data sharing and portability would lead to a lot more innovation and competition in data-driven markets. Instead, as you know, five years later, open data is still largely an aspiration. So I think that the real challenge is, as, as you highlight, you know, it, could it pose a hurdle on the adoption? It could, but I actually think both looking at, at, the, at the lessons from GDPR and, and looking at how the EU has been approaching it. I mean, this time around, I think the EU has a real shot at achieving this innovation objective. I mean, why do I say that? First of all, you would have seen that this proposed legislation appears together with a lot of other proposals around an EU-wide strategy. There's, there's a lot of other thinking that has gone on. It's not just about here's the law that everybody must follow. Secondly, you know, they've, they've banned the use of AI in a small number of areas, but actually they've regulated, they've explicitly said we'll regulate the use of AI in high-risk areas. I actually think regulating the use of AI in high-risk areas is a great way of unleashing greater adoption. Why? Because you have the certainty of reliable guardrails. Well, I'm going to use it in a dangerous area or potentially high stakes area, but at least I have clear guardrails. So that allows me to say, yes, I can operate or no, I cannot, right? So that's good. And then the other thing is, you know, maybe perhaps somewhat selfishly, but provisions around AI quality assessment and certification that could actually spawn an entire new industry, you know, firms like ours, you know, new audit firms, certification firms, people who spend time acting as the bridge between technology and, and humans as, you know, explaining to customers, et cetera. And so that could even create a whole new category of jobs for all I know, right? So I'm very much hopeful that, uh, you know, we will, we will see the same thought leadership that the EU provided with GDPR on, on data protection, but that it will also be combined with actually unleashing innovation in some ways, getting over that caution that we talked about earlier, because there is now more clarity and, and, and the objective is not to stop the growth of AI. The objective is to provide clear guardrails. Um, at least that's my hope after the first read of the 102 pages. <laughs> well, you're not the only one that hasn't finished the, uh, all of the appendixes and, and that came with the 100 and plus page document. Indeed. But I, I, I agree with you. I think it's an application risk-based approach. Um, and in the EU, I think it was needed because... I mean, and this is just from conversations with different European firms, there is this thinking that we don't move 
with innovation. And we don't move with the, this specific use case in machine learning unless we know that it's going to be okay, which is not the case elsewhere in the world where in other countries, we move ahead until we are told to stop. It's the thinking in, in other countries. Yep. Shoot first and apologize later. <laughs> right. So there is a different, I, I don't know if it's cultural, but there is a different, uh, maybe it's more historical just based on, on what has been there before, but there is a different thinking. And so I think this, is, this was needed. And I also think it's good that they were trying to avoid regulatory overlap with the framework that they've, they've put in place. Shamik, I'd like to conclude by perhaps talking about the, the main benefits and the main areas where there's the potential for a positive impact in banking. Uh, in doing so, I might make a link to one comment you made earlier. Um, you were talking about identifying customers as part of the onboarding process and how you know, you'd probably have a preference still for relying on government national identity systems. And I think that's a really great illustration of how you know, we need to be thinking about the right kind of innovations and the right technologies for the right areas of application. Uh, our machine learning in AML study a couple of years ago found that there was a lot happening with machine learning as part of the, the AML process, but it was in the transaction monitoring and detection stages rather than the onboarding. And certainly the work that the IAF's been doing with the OpenID Foundation about digital identity has focused a lot more on uh, some of the other linkages, as you mentioned, being able to access and, and be interoperable with other identity systems. But whether that's a, a cue for you or, or, or whether you have other thoughts, just keen for your, your snapshot view of the major benefits and the major areas for a positive impact. So, I mean, I think two years ago when somebody asked me this question at, at the FinTech Festival, the standard stock answer is financial inclusion, of course. And that is true. It is actually very much true that without uh, not just machine learning, but broader use of alternative data, uh, and algorithms and digital, uh, you, we are just not going to get financial inclusion. And, and that's both lending decisions as well as KYC and, and risk assessment and so on, right? So that still remains, I think, an important goal. But I guess a couple of other things uh, come to mind in terms of the impact. One is that point about encouraging open innovation and, and, and an ecosystem of innovation. I think uh, not machine learning alone, but a mix of open data, you know, digital identity, and machine learning is collectively going to be the way in which we drive um, distributed innovation in financial services, right? I think that's going to be, that's not necessarily just about financial inclusion. It's about encouraging more competition, encouraging more service providers. And it's not that it's only dependent on ML. I think it's dependent on a mix of identities, digital identities and more open data sharing and machine learning. I think that is another important area. I think that the third thing is that as we look at more and more disruption uh, in, in this industry or attempted disruption from technology players, I, I think to some extent, machine learning should be the way in which the inevitable risk and compliance challenges, some will call it bureaucracy, some will call it overhead, some will call it governance with a derogative uh, tone. So, so I think there is a need to take machine learning and, and to a place where it can start improving uh, the experience of end customers uh, when it comes to dealing with banks and insurers. It is also, by the way, very important in a completely different, but kind of it's a mirror image. As we have all these new banks and technology companies entering financial services, they are actually many of them flying blind uh, about, or, or at least we're flying blind about the regulatory requirements, compliance requirements, et cetera. And again, machine learning can be a way of helping them kind of get up to the basic minimum on, on many of these things. So I would say those two additional pieces, in addition to financial inclusion, uh, distributed innovation and, and reducing 
the the cost and particularly the customer impact of uh, compliance requirements. Those are, I think, also quite important. Shamik, thanks uh, thanks for joining us again. It's been great to speak with you and you've run through, I think you've covered a lot of ground uh, and a lot of really pertinent topics. I'm going to attempt to pick out a few uh, snapshots or takeaways out of your your comments. Uh, I don't know how much justice I'll do, but I will try. And I think uh, perhaps to to begin, I like the uh, analogy of your own transition from the super tanker to the yacht and uh, perhaps the trade-off of agility versus stability in the time of a storm. Uh, It's a great analogy that I think we can all relate or, or picture. I thought it was really, really important, the, the point you made about the biggest uses, the biggest areas of application being primarily about customer engagement. It also ties in with the point you were just making a moment ago about some of the benefits. The need to be customer focused is a theme that we hear repeatedly throughout the, the digital transformation agenda. And you've related that the early areas of adoption have been very much uh, aligned with that. Uh, but also with that, you made the point that it's, it's by no means an experiment, but it's still growing in terms of having a significant level of importance I think that analogy of where the CEO may have sleepless nights about the risk of the ATM network going down and not yet feeling the same way about the algorithms, I think is a a great reminder uh, and a great uh, almost reality check, perhaps. Uh, The the trust and scalability deficit uh, and that those that are using the technology need to be able to convince their business peers, they need to be able to convince their risk managers, and that there is this journey ahead still in, in overcoming that deficit, establishing trust as well as scalability. Obviously, the work that, that firms like Truera uh, are helping to, to build that throughout the, the ecosystem. And then continuing with the ecosystem, uh, I think that the notion of the ecosystem of players, and I thought it was a really pertinent point you gave of the, the scenario where another firm might be originating loans for you or vice versa in this, this cooperative structures and the complication of what that might mean if complete transparency of every part of intellectual property is expected to be shared. It's a, it's a really interesting thought of, of that complication that comes with the reality, I think, really of the, the ecosystem of partners that we're all increasingly facing into. And two last points I'll, I'll capture or, or reiterate. I like the point you made that, that regulators have done well, uh, have done well, and, and I think very much, as you've said, have, have listened and been very collaborative in their outreach. And I like the point that you made of, of perhaps the next phase, the next step for them being focusing a little more perhaps on the implementation side and, and encouraging initiatives like Veritas that you have in Singapore as a means of helping to bring some of those ecosystem participants together um, and helping turn the beginnings of the regulatory principles as something that then actually comes into to practice. Lastly, the, the European Union uh, new framework that, uh, that Natalia raised with you and your point that it's potentially going to be as big as GDPR or, or indeed even bigger given the, the breadth of scope. But I do like the point you make there also that regulating artificial intelligence in high-risk areas may actually be helpful to the adoption as a means of having those clear guardrails in place and where that can help perhaps as being part of the journey in overcoming that trust deficit um, that you alluded to earlier. So Shamik, it's been great to, to connect with you again. Great to hear of your own transition and, and the, the scope of, of what you're working on with Truera, but also for the, the tour de force you've given us looking across the, uh, the spectrum of, of key issues in this space. It's been terrific to have you with us here on FRT. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rad and Natalia. Thank you for the opportunity. And looking ahead on FRT, we've got a few other great upcoming guests that I want to highlight. Uh, We're going to have a look at new technologies such as machine learning in the fight against financial crime with Adrian Delacasa. Uh, Adrian, of course, was a former secondee to the IEF and led a lot of the work with Natalia on that machine learning in AML study that I mentioned. Uh, He's now, of course, back home at Unicredit in Munich. We're also going to talk about RegTech with Chris Steele of KPMG, and we'll probably actually overlap with some of the themes we've talked about here also. 
And uh, I also wanted to mention that I'm going to catch up with Steve Suarez, who's the Global Head of Innovation, Finance and Risk at HSBC. Shamik referred uh, today to a, uh, a meeting of the Baal SIG that Shamik and I co-presented at in Tokyo a couple of years ago. Actually presented at the prior one of those with Steve, and uh, and he's going to talk a bit more about the innovation journey at HSBC, and in particular a program that he's mobilised together with Stanford University. So we've got a lot more coming up. Please stay safe and join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.